Welcome to Thought Crime and Keto Crime, where Tracy does the sleuthing so you don't have to. Welcome back to Keto and Crime and Thought Crime. Today we're going to get into the second major part of the Walt Disney Expose. Today we're going to cover the 1940s, 50s, and into the 60s up to Walt Disney's death. And uh, we're going to have a good time doing it. So, a little bit of housekeeping. If you'd like to support the channel, please do so below. My Patreon links, PayPal, all that good stuff is down below. It just goes to the improvement of the channel, new equipment, uh, allowing me to buy books and things like that. I really enjoy hanging out with you each and every week, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Let me give a shout out to my patrons. The luscious Lauren Kirk, the stupendous Sarah Carney, the awesome Andrea Lee, the tumultuous Tabra Summers Cooper, the stupendous Stephanie Mertz, and the dynamite Demalza Pasco. Thank you so much. Couldn't do it without you. You really are the bedrock of the channel, in addition to all my wonderful viewers out there. Thank you so much. The best thing you can do for the channel is to smash that like button for the YouTube algorithm. Give it a share. Give it a comment. Let me know what you think. And uh, with that, let's get into it. Part 3 of the Walt Disney story. Golly! Now for part 3. Everybody, let's pick up. Now, we left off in 1939-1940 with the failure of Fantasia and Pinocchio due to the escalating war in Europe, and also America is still in the midst of the Great Depression, as is the whole world. And this is when um, Disney actually, to combat it, to keep everybody employed and keep the company afloat with the dismal box office sales of their last two features, they offered their first public stock offering of Disney stock in 1940 and implemented salary cuts to keep the company afloat. Um, that didn't sit over too well with Disney employees, as you can imagine. Um, Disney, for as great a man and a kind of man as he was outside of the studio, he could be a bit of an ass at work. He was definitely uh, a driven, he wanted everybody that worked for him to be as driven as he is, but unfortunately that doesn't always work out. He was a cruel, he could be a cruel taskmaster, a heavy-handed taskmaster that would not freely give anyone a compliment. Uh, most people that have worked for him said he was a great person to work with, he was genius, you could learn a lot from him, but don't ever expect him to compliment your work. He would compliment your work to other people and you would hear it second hand but you'll never hear it from him. He was a perfectionist and wanted you to be a perfectionist, and therefore perfectionists are never satisfied with their work. Kind of a warped way to do it, but that's how Disney was. And he saw salary cut as no big deal because he was still keeping them employed when millions of people were out of work. I underwent a salary cut during this whole mess with one of my day jobs, and I stayed because they've been good to me and the salary will go back up. But unfortunately, there was already a hotbed of complaints among animators and cartoonists in the industry. They already felt that they were being put upon. And the, what happened at Disney was kind of the last straw. Most of his staff in 1941 joined the, the Hollywood animator strike and walked. There were a few animators that stood loyal to him and were willing to walk back into the studio past the strike line, past the picket lines, but not many. And it was those animators that continued work on the next animated feature, 
Dumbo in 1941, which featured a young boy separated from his mother who tried to defend them and she's taken away. So, yeah. Uh, Disney was hurt. Disney was hurt. He felt that Disney Studios was a family and to have people walk out simply because he cut salaries, including his own and Roy's, to keep the studio afloat, he felt really betrayed. And it was during this time that his very strong anti-union feelings started to take face. He was very distrustful of the unions during the strike and became venomously anti-union. And often you've heard that Walt was some sort of closet Nazi and that he was anti-Semitic. No, he actually received a couple of awards from some from Jewish societies about how he employed a lot of Jewish people and was vehemently against what the Nazis were doing to Jews. In fact, many of the cartoons that you see that's often applied to Disney as saying he was pro-Nazi, they're actually propaganda films. They're anti-Nazi. It's sarcasm. So, yeah. In one of those films, Defer Space, starring Donald Duck, one of his newer characters, and he was you know, completing all of the other characters during this time, too, is a mastery of anti-Nazi propaganda, even though short bits of it are taken to show nowadays that he was pro-Nazi. Don't believe everything that you see. He also produced another one called Victory Through Power that was vehemently pro-Ally, pro-America, and he himself, because of his hate of unions and realizing that what just happened was a one-way street to communism where, you know, Stalin, you know, Stalin had become involved in World War I by this time, and so there was not only a fear of the Nazis, there was a fear of Stalinism and Marxism, Stalinist Marxism coming in. And as a result, he felt that what, that the rise of unions and the rise of strikes was a communist time, and he joined the Anti-Communist League. He was one of many celebrities that testified before Congress during the McCarthy era, and he was vehemently anti-union and anti-communist. I'm just going to put that out there right now. But like all strikes, it was settled. And once again, Walt Disney Studios got down to the business of producing movies. And Dumbo was finally released in early 1942 and did very well at the box office. He also started production on his next feature film in the midst of putting out uh, pro-American and pro-ally propaganda films. He put out and started working on the show, the feature-length film Bambi, which we all know the famous scene from that and how Walt was still dealing with his mother's death and his guilt over that at this time. But and unfortunately, Bambi, which was finally released in 1942 as well, it ended up losing $200,000 in its initial release. And no one really knows why. Maybe a story about a deer wasn't the best. I mean, Dumbo did really well, but Dumbo was about an elephant with a talking mouse. Maybe it was a little more exciting than just Bambi and Thumper and, you know, the skunk all playing on the ice. I love Bambi. Bambi is one of my favorites, but I think over the years, Bambi, with, you know, future releases, Bambi has more than made up for what it lost way back then. But initially, it didn't do so well at the box office. However, due to having to slow production of actually mon money-making films to do propaganda films, as well as the dismal results of, you know, Fantasia, Pinocchio, and now Bambi, Dumbo was not enough to keep the studio going. And they found themselves in about $4 million of debt with Bank of America. 
and they really felt they were going to lose the studio and foreclosure to Bank of America. However, they had a friend, an unknown friend in Bank of America chairman, Amando Gianni, who was a huge Disney fan. And he made a speech at his board of directors meeting saying, Disney's going to be good this year, next year, and the year after. We have to be patient. They will pay this back and we need to finance whatever movies they need to make because we can't, we can't let this great American treasure to go down the hole. And so they had a loyal financier in Bank of America that continued to finance their films well into the 40s. But Roy and Disney, Roy and Walt knew they had to make a change. Um, they were starting to see a lot of competition from Warner Brothers and MGM and the animated MGM was coming out with favorites, Tom and Jerry, Droopy. Warner Brothers was starting to come out with the Looney Tunes. Uh, there is a rumor that uh, perhaps Bugs Bunny was a reincarnation of Oswald, but that's never really been linked. But let's just say that Walt Disney was starting to have some competition. So Roy pressed his brother to embark into the much cheaper way of doing true life adventures, real life adventures with human actors and even just wildlife films that could be cheaper to make but still turn a profit and help get them out of their financial quagmire that they were in. So in 1948, Walt Disney did just that. He started a series of popular nature films, starting with Seal Island in 1948, which was a an expose of baby seals in the Arctic that ran over an hour it ended up being one of the most popular and profitable movies Disney ever released, winning an Academy Award for Best Short Subject. And during 1946 was a big year for Disney. Before he jumped headfirst into his one of the greatest movies that he ever did, which was part animation and part uh, live adventure, he took the time to continue to give back to uh, his community by actually producing a health film called The Story of Menstruation. Yes, don't laugh. Walt Disney did a health film, and I'm about to drop a clip of it for you right here. Why is nature always called Mother Nature? Perhaps it's because, like any mother, she quietly manages so much of our living without our ever realizing there's a woman at work. Why, right from the beginning, we breathe and sleep and wake up with no more conscious planning than we used in sprouting teeth. Mother Nature controls many of our routine bodily processes through automatic control centers called glands. The story of menstruation, childhood years, this pituitary gland concentrates on producing growth hormones busy little messengers which circulate through the bloodstream. They order the various bones and tissues to get growing. And as a girl grows up from blocks to dolls to books, that means her body is obeying the orders issued by the pituitary gland. Of course, these orders vary among different girls. Some girls grow short, some tall, some heavy, and some slight. But there comes a time somewhere between the ages of 11 and 17, though about 13 is average, 
when the pituitary must turn part of its attention to maturing the body which it has grown. So it starts sending out a new type of hormone, a maturing hormone. And that is when menstruation begins, when these maturing hormones start coming down through the bloodstream to the ovaries. The ovaries themselves are glands about the size of almonds, and locked within each ovary are thousands of eggs. Although these eggs are too small to be seen by the human eye, in the upcoming presidential elections, uh, Disney did switch from Democratic to Republican. He, as I said, was vehemently anti-communist, jumped right on the McCarthy bandwagon and believed that any sort of Marxism needs to be squashed out. So he was a Republican for the rest of his life. Just putting that out there. With the success of Seal Island, Walt Disney decided it was time to once again merge real life with animation. And in 1946, he released a film that I think should be in the Library of Congress, a film that is so controversial today, but it's one of the greats. It stars two of the best African-American actors to ever walk the face of the earth, James Baskett and Hattie McDaniel. Gone with the wind, Hattie McDaniel. Hattie McDaniel was the first African-American actor to ever win an actual Oscar for her work in Gone with the, the Immortal Gone with the Wind. But this movie was Song of the South. And it was based on the Uncle Remus stories that were so popular in children's literature at the time, told by Uncle Remus, who was a freed slave, who um, befriended children of all races and all colors, and told wonderful stories about Br'er Bear, Br'er Fox and Br'er Rabbit. I read the Uncle Remus's stories as a kid. I loved this movie as a kid. And I understand why it's controversial today. Slavery should never be presented as a wonderful institution. I don't think this movie did, though. It was during, uh, it was during Reconstruction. It wasn't during slave days. And it showed African freed slaves still working and living on a plantation. But let's get it down. Forty acres and a mule had not exactly been successful until this time. And so a lot of a lot of former slaves either had to live on the plantation and still work for money and work for shelter or be kicked off the plantation and go starve somewhere. Now, let's be honest. Maybe that was their only choice. And because these slaves seemed happy or these former slaves seemed happy, that's a crime. I don't get that. No one in this movie was depressed. No one is saying that slavery was a good institution. I'm glad it's gone. It should never have been a thing, but it was for many civilizations. However, these were freedmen that were still living on the plantation because they really had nowhere else to go, and that's a lot of people's faults. But it was still a movie meant to mend fences. It brought two they brought a lot of African-American actors into the forefront. Was one of Hattie McDaniel's best roles ever. And James Baskett, who played Uncle Remus. Thanks to this movie and thanks to Walt Disney going and petitioning the Academy. Won an honorary Oscar for his portrayal of Uncle Remus in this movie. And brings me to tears. Because James Baskett died in 1948. And he has often said that that movie and that Oscar was one of the high points of his career. So before you piss on a movie, 
think about the people that were actually affected by it. Off soapbox. Song of the South was an amazing accomplishment. Not only did it breach racial barriers, it also took animation and live action and turned it on its ear. You had real-life humans with animation in their world, and you also had real-life people merging into an animated world, all in the same movie. And Song of the South did very well at the box office. In 1949, Tisini and his family moved into the Homeby Hills District of Los Angeles, and that is the house in which Walt would build his own backyard railroad. He didn't make a whole lot of movies during 48 and 49 because he was busy testifying in Washington during the McCarthy trials. And he also, during this time, started working on another animated feature that would usher in the 1950s for the Disney Studios, and that was Cinderella. And it was one of the most popular movies in the Disney in the Disney filmography ever. It cost over $2 million to produce, but made $8 million in its first year. So it can definitely say that it ushered in big profitability for the Disney Studios. Disney also started plans on uh, British studios and actually went over to England because England had a rule at that time that any... English set, any film that was set in England had to be filmed in England. It, it was a weird time. But anyway, 1950 produced Treasure Island, which was one of the most successful live-action films in Disney's filmography, followed by Robin Hood and His Merry Men in 1952. This is a live-action version of Robin Hood, not the animated one that's so dear to my heart. And in also 1951 and 1953, you had two more live action. The actual adaption of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland in 1951 and Peter Pan in 1953, which Walt said was near and dear to his heart because he played Peter Pan in a school play once and always felt he was Peter, that he never grew up. Also in 1953, after taking his daughters to an amuse several amusement parks and finding them dirty and lacking, this is where he got the idea for what would be his magnum opus, Disneyland. And he started planning to build it in Orange County, city of Anaheim, which at that time was low rent, low, low cost. And he believed the projections at that area would grow tremendously in the next few years. So why not build an amusement park there? And so the next few years of his life, were consumed. But Disney knew he couldn't build it on his own. So he went to his old buddies at Bank of America and to ABC, the American Broadcasting Company, to talk about what they could do to possibly make Disneyland a success. He and ABC struck a deal, whereas ABC would help finance Disneyland and would have 35% stake in Disneyland, as well as the exclusive rights to Walt Disney's first ever television show. And they decided that in 1955, they would start airing Walt Disney's Disneyland on ABC television. And from that would come the Mickey Mouse Club, which dominated children's television for years. As part of uh, Walt Disney's Disneyland and the Mickey Mouse Club, you had several live action short series that started to take up take up prominence that talked about American history. You had Davy Crockett, known as the Ballad of Davy Crockett. You also had 
the Swamp Fox, which is one of my favorite, the story of Francis Marion, who was a guerrilla fighter during the Revolutionary War. And it was during this time that Walt formed Disneyland Records and started to record The Mouseketeers as well as other soundtracks from his previous movies and found a whole new revenue stream, all of which led to the construction of his fantasy kingdom at Disneyland. And this all culminated in 1955 with the official opening of Disneyland and Walt Disney gave a very short and brief speech which I'm going to drop right here for you. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Thank you. What was unique about Disneyland, unlike films, which are in the can and are finished and ready to go, he said Disneyland would never be completed. It would be a fantasy place. He planned things like Tomorrowland and Adventureland. Things, things that would never be complete. They would move and change with the times. As new things become history, they would be tastefully combined what was already there. Disneyland opened uh, with 20,000 visitors a day, and by the end of its first year, had already attracted over 3.6 million guests. And it was a success, together with the Mickey Mouse Club, Walt Disney's Disneyland, his live-action uh, American patriotic television series, Walt Disney, was really coming into his own. And with that, we will end part three and move to part four, the late 50s and the 60s. <laughs> now for part four. He undertook, in 1957, the, cons the filming of a video or a movie known as America the Beautiful, which is a 19-minute film filmed in Cinemascope that showed the most popular attractions across the U.S. that was to be entered into an American national exhibition in Moscow. He was actually contacted by the president to do this, and so he presented it. He was on the uh, pageantry committee for the 1960 Winter Olympics, which were held in Squaw Valley, California where he designed the opening, closing, and medal ceremonies, Go Walt Disney. He also did his part to ensure America was the first to make it to the moon and the American space program by developing a short known as Man in Space, which premiered as part of his Disneyland series, showing the wonders of space and opening up the possibility that we would eventually get there to millions of children. He also oversaw aspects of his new feature-length films that were in production, namely Lady and the Tramp. Based, Lady was actually based on a child puppy he had bought Lillian when they were first married. 101 Dalmatians and Sword in the Stone. So these were his next few productions and he was highly involved in them. And then he went back to live-action feature films. I mean, he had already had tremendous success with Treasure Island, with Song of the South, and with Swiss Family Robinson. So he decided that he would do it again and develop, wanted to develop the story of Mary Poppins, the fantasticial uh, ampere uh, from, uh, from London. He had already decided on Dick Van Dyke, played the lead character of Dawes, the chimney sweep, but he still hadn't thought of 
who would actually play Mary because they had to be a great singer and dancer in addition to being a great actress. And a couple of his friends suggested then-Broadway sensation Julie Andrews. Walt said, no, there's something about her I don't like. So, some of his producers were actually friends with Julie and knew that she was appearing in Camelot on Broadway. So, during a business trip to New York, they took Walt to see Camelot. And he was immediately mesmerized by Julie Andrews, who had to whistle an entire song. And one of the issues with the Mary Poppins character was they had to be able to whistle for a long amount of time and also had to provide the whistle uh, voice for some of the birds, animated birds in the movie. And when he saw Julie Andrews, he knew that she had to have the part. And as a result, 1964... Mary Poppins came out starring Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke, and I think you know the history and how well that was received. It's one of my favorites. Also in 1964, he developed It's a Small World, a uh, kind of a animatronic live-action display showing a future tomorrow and the world becoming smaller and smaller as people learn to bridge barriers at the 1964 World's Fair. And that later on, that very thing would become a thing at Disneyland. And then in 1965, he started working on what he knew would be the most one of the most important things he ever did. Orlando, Florida, not far from where his parents met and married. He made plans for Epcot, which would be the City of Tomorrow. It's actually short for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow, Epcot. He wanted it to show just how much culture and richness there was in the world and how it would also, like Disneyland, never be completed. And that, he knew, would be his greatest creation of all. And so, in 1965, he started planning and coming up with the financing to make that a reality. 1966, animated movies The Jungle Book, Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day came out. But alas, in November 1966, his lifetime of smoking that he picked up during World War I finally caught up with him when Walt Disney became gravely ill at his Burbank home. He felt very sick uh, late November, and his family drove him to the hospital. St. Joseph Hospital in Los Angeles, where he was diagnosed with late-stage lung cancer. He had no symptoms up until that point. It just got him. And uh, December 15, 1966, one of the greatest animators of our day looked at his daughter, Diane, and said, I guess this is it, kid. And he slipped to an eternal sleep, never knowing that Roy and his family and the Disney company would go on to make Walt Disney World and Epcot a reality. I'm sorry, give me just a second. And going forward, Walt Disney still produces some of the best family entertainment in the world. Walt Disney World, as well as Tokyo Disney and other Disney, French Disney, produces some of the best entertainment. I'm crying because Walt Disney was such a part of my childhood. I, I love the man, I love what he did. And no one's perfect, so I forgive him his shortcomings, as we all should forgive each other our shortcomings. 
to know that he's brought unmitigated joy to billions of people and only wanted to give children the childhood he never had. And really personified. that Jiminy Cricket, in one of his earliest features, Pinocchio, spoke. He was the living personification of it. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Then with that, I will see you next time. Keto Comic, out.